Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm David Clark, your host, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Gerald Stack. Gerald is the portfolio manager of the Magellan Infrastructure Fund, a fund that invests in global listed infrastructure, things like toll roads and communications, integrated power and transmission and distribution and gas utilities. Gerald describes it as boring and dull businesses with consistent cash flows. Nonetheless, this strategy returned over 20% last year and has returned over 14.4% per annum compound annually over the last 10 years. I take a deep dive into the infrastructure investment market with Gerald talking about what he looks for in infrastructure investments, what the current state of the market is, and what effect low interest rates are having on the valuation of these assets, and what the trends are globally in this type of market. Please remember that this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be a recommendation of any one specific investment. I encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and seek advice before making any investments. Please, if you can remember to send me feedback at david.clark at codacapital.com, it would be appreciated. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm sure you will. Gerald Stack, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Gerald, perhaps we could kick off with you giving us a bit of a summary of your background and how you come to be doing the job you're doing at the moment. Okay, so I'm going to take you back in in time. There's probably four uh, important components to my career, and each have been important to me being here today. Um, The first one was my first job. I started at KPMG. I'm a chartered accountant, uh, and accounting sort of underpins the nature of investment. Um, I was lucky at KPMG, I had really good mentors, uh, people who taught me a lot about financial accounting in particular. So we did a lot of work around um, uh, the, the, the subtleties around financial accounting and that underpins a lot of what you uh, do in investment. So that was important. I also was, uh, I did a, ro- a variety of different things. I was at KPMG for five or so years. And one of the things I did was I was uh, jointly responsible for recruiting graduates in New South Wales. And we took on around about 100 graduates per annum um, at that time. And that meant thousands of interviews over the course of two years. Um, and that's incredibly valuable, or has been incredibly valuable experience for me. So both those things were kind of important. Now from KPMG, I then went to AIDC, Australian Industry Development Corporation, um, a company that no longer exists, but it was set up uh, to invest in originally in venture capital and then subsequently they changed tack and decided to invest in infrastructure. I joined once they decided they're going to invest in infrastructure. It was 75% owned by the government, 25% listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So a listed company investing in, in infrastructure and the group that I joined um, was investing in unlisted infrastructure. So my career in infrastructure started in around about 93 um, and uh, investing in unlisted infrastructure. And that was my introduction to infrastructure and I got to see a, a range of different things in my, in my time there. So that was sort of the start of that um, and that was kind of important. Infrastructure in those days not nearly as well understood or defined as it is today. Um, from there I went to a firm called Capital Partners uh, and I worked with some really wonderful people, uh, particularly the principal guy called Peter Doherty, uh, but also a guy called uh, Bob Officer, Professor Bob Officer, who was a shareholder and part of the firm and another guy, Dennis Eager, who came with me here to Magellan. So each of those guys in, important. At, at uh, Capital Partners, we set up to be, and this is in the late 90s, um, a, an independent provider of research. Um, there are plenty of independent research available today. Back then, there were not many. You could count them on one hand. 
um, and we were competing with the major bulge bracket firms who uh, gave away their research essentially for free and we were charging for it. So it was an interesting business model. Um, and so that was a startup. Um, I was there for nearly nine years. Over, the peer, uh, uh, over that time, we went from being advisors, advising mutual funds and pension funds, the, the wholesale end of the market on infrastructure. Generally, that was the bulk of what we did, and that could be stocks, that could be individual transactions on privatisations, that could be policy and definition of infrastructure. We came to know that very well, and we did that both for Australian pension funds and mutual funds and also international. We, we grew something of a reputation. So uh, you know, really quite intensive work across the infrastructure spectrum over that time. Peter was very much the principal. He was a bit of a visionary, a wonderful guy to work with. And we learned a hell of a lot of stuff over that time. Um, uh, Bob was important because he brought a, a, a certain perspective on finance, really that um, uh, what we would call vanilla cost of capital, so very vanilla a sense making it simple. Um, Dennis was just a wonderful person who had worked uh, for a long period at, at both Leighton's and Macquarie, so brought experience from both the construction side but also the investment side of infrastructure. So each of those three people were really quite influential in the way I've come to think about infrastructure over time. Um, we, we, we went from being an advisor to being an investor. We jumped the fence, as it were, and we became an investor. Um, we, our approach was somewhat different. It was focused on very intensive research, looking for those things that were attractively priced. And infrastructure is not particularly complex, generally. That's, as I like to say, that's why I do it. Um, so there aren't a lot of things, or you don't expect there to be a lot of things that are cheap. So we're looking for those things and, and spending a lot of time trying to identify them. And when we identified them, we would put a meaningful amount of capital to work. So our portfolio was quite concentrated. Our client base was typically sovereign wealth style funds. So, and by that I mean funds who have long dated cashing flows, lots of money coming in and no money to go out for a long period of time. And the beauty of a client like that is, theoretically, they can handle volatility, um, as we came to learn over time. Volatility is a wonderful thing when prices are going up. <laughs> Clients not so keen on volatility when prices are going down, but theoretically they can handle it. So concentrated portfolio around infrastructure, intensive research behind that. Um, so I then went from Capital Partners and joined Magellan, uh, and that was back in uh, January 2007, so you know, 12 and a half years ago. Um, and Dennis Eager and myself and one other guy from Capital Partners came across to Magellan. Um, Dennis retired a couple of years ago, but Dennis and I have been partners in the business, in the infrastructure business here really over that time. Um, and I continued to learn a lot from Dennis, but also learned a lot from Hamish. I'd say I've learned a lot from my team. We've got an incredibly talented infrastructure team and more broadly from the investment team. We've got an amazing group of people really. So, but you know, certainly Hamish, Chris Mackay, um, and Dennis all been influential in the way I've come to think about investment more uh, broadly and, and infrastructure in particular. So each of those parts of the puzzle from accounting, building it up um, to the, my initial time in infrastructure to then really, I think, defining infrastructure in a pretty rigorous and robust way at Capital Partners and, and exploring all the nooks and crannies that were out there on behalf of our clients to then what we've come to do at Magellan, um, uh, you know, to a more broad-based retail focused uh, client base than perhaps uh, than, a, than a capital partner. So that, that's the potted history. And was that the start of the infrastructure fund at Magellan? Yeah, so we started the fund in 1 July 2007, um, which, you know, given the GFC happened pretty much 
you know, a year later, would tell you that market timing's not really our thing. Yes. Um, would have been good to have hold that, held that off for a couple of years. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we started the fund 1 July 2007. We spent the first six months or so getting everything ready, all our models, all our work, getting all that prepped. But the, but the fund started 1 July 2007. And whose idea was it to start the fund? Because obviously Magellan's probably known for flagship global uh, equities fund. Yep. Um, how did that come about? And sort of whose idea and driving was it to say, well, it'd be a good idea to build an infrastructure fund? Well, from the very earliest times, Magellan, uh, Chris and Hamish in, this, in setting up Magellan had a concept that they would could be going, what I, what I would think about as predictable outcomes. They wanted high quality businesses, predictable outcomes, and they focused on three particular sectors, financial services, franchise and infrastructure was their earliest way of thinking about that. We've come to define or to, to break those things apart and look a little bit more broadly. So within franchise, we have healthcare now as a separate sector that we particularly focus on. But infrastructure right from the earliest days was something that Chris and Hamish had said that they were looking uh, to, to invest in over time. Um, so when Dennis and I decided to uh, leave Capital Partners, um, Chris and Hamish were natural people for us to go and talk to. So it was there right from the earliest days, but um, uh, you, you know, we're not the, uh, we've had a reasonably successful time of it, but yes, we're not the global fund. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that, Gerald. Can you tell me your current role at the moment at Magellan? Uh, so I'm head of the infrastructure team. We, within the infrastructure team, we run a couple of different strategies. One's a wholesale strategy, more diversified. Uh, the others, both wholesale and retail, um, what most of your clients will know is the Magellan Infrastructure Fund. Um, so I, I'm the lead portfolio manager in respect of those two strategies, and I run the infrastructure team, of which there's essentially seven people involved in. I'm also head of the investment team. Um, we, if you think about us as a relatively small business in terms of number of people, uh, we split a range of different responsibilities amongst the team. Head of investment means, if you like, head of the business of the investment team, trying to make sure that um, our suppliers, brokers, uh, data suppliers and so on get paid, that we're getting the amount, right amount of data that our people, we've got the right number of people, they, they're getting appropriate development opportunities and so on. So I'm not involved really with the research process per se, that's for Harry Roche, uh, head of research, Dom Giuliano, if you like, as deputy CIO, is sort of in charge of the idea generation process. Um, but everything, anything that falls outside of those baskets comes into comes into me. Okay. Well, I'd like to dive into the infrastructure fund, if I could, please. Uh, firstly, if you could maybe give us your definition of infrastructure, i.e., what what's the investable universe and what sort of things you're looking to invest in. Okay, so the broad base, the, the way that investors typically think of infrastructure is they think of it as uh, essential assets, assets that provide services that are essential for the efficient function of the community. If you think about it, what is that? It's the provision of energy, uh, the provision of water, the provision of transport. Um, they're the, they're, these are essential services that uh, efficient communities can't really live without. So Medical it's, services? Uh, medical services, yes. Um, uh, it, what, what we're also after is monopoly, mm -hmm. okay, so I've sidestepped that if you like, where we don't see medical necessarily as a monopoly, certainly in a competitive environment. If it's nationalised, absolutely, but otherwise there are multiple places you can get medical services. So um, we have tended to avoid medical services. Um, within transport, there are things like communications, which we would regard as the transportation of data. So um, there, are, there are little uh, pockets within there that don't necessarily neatly or don't automatically come under those uh, definitions that I talk about, but they're the three key buckets for us. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, essential assets and, and reliable demand is kind of nice, 
um, the way that we think about the world is what infrastructure is actually about is delivering investors reliable, predictable outcomes. In other words, uh, investment returns they should be very, very confident about. Uh, and therefore to do that, um, we need to make sure that while a company faces reliable demand, it, that there is no sort of external variable that means that that reliable demand doesn't end up as being reliable earnings. So by that I mean things like power generation. Provision of energy is clearly an essential service, but power generation, the price of power fluctuates every minute. Um, and the price in power in Australia last year, the average price was about $90 a megawatt hour, different in different states, but roughly $90 a megawatt hour. Compared to that average price of $90, the maximum price was $14,000 a megawatt hour, and the minimum price was negative $550 a megawatt hour. So notwithstanding the fact that you've got a very essential service, the price for that service is, uh, is quite volatile, and therefore if the price is volatile, revenues are volatile and earnings are volatile. So in our view, when investors allocate to infrastructure, what they're after is reliable, predictable returns. And by virtue of, by, merely by virtue of being an essential service, that doesn't necessarily deliver you that. So we look to the potential universe of essential assets. There's about 350 of those out there across, uh, around the world with a market cap of about four trillion. And we screen out anything which faces competition risk, and that's power generation, if you like. We, we screen out anything which has commodity price risk, uh, there, it's what we want to avoid is oil and gas pipelines, typically in the US, which toll the value of the oil or gas going through the pipeline rather than volume. So there's a company in Australia called uh, uh, APA or Australian Pipeline Group. Um, it essentially tolls volume. The more gas that goes through the network, the, the higher their revenues, the higher their earnings. Mm -hmm. These oil and gas pipelines that we don't like so much in the US toll the value. So as the oil price rises and falls, so does their revenue, so does their earnings. And one of the things we are not good at, uh, that we have no skill at, is forecasting oil prices, and therefore we will not, we're not willing to take that risk. So we're going to avoid anything with that commodity price risk. Typically there's pipelines in the US, or energy infrastructure in the US. We're going to avoid power generation. We're also going to avoid sovereign risk. And if you might think of sovereign risk for us as meaning essentially no China. Uh, China has highly attractive themes when it comes to infrastructure. Car ownership's grown at something like 10% per annum for about the last 20 years in China. So you build a toll road in China, they will come. But the Chinese government has from time to time mandated that uh, on the national holidays that toll roads are going to be free. Mm -hmm. And they do that for very good public policy reasons. On those eight national holidays, people tend to go back to their place of birth, their local communities. So that in an effort to try and keep the population happy, they've mandated that those toll roads are free. That happened in 2011. And that worked so well for them that the following year in 2012, the government decided that actually there's a day either side, you need, you know, they need to get around. So instead of the eight days, there's going to be 20 days which are free. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Uh, great for the population, good for the government, not so great if you own the toll road. Now in most jurisdictions, really in all jurisdictions, we're willing to invest in, in, in the event that that would happen then the company that owns the road would go back to the government and get compensation. Yeah, good luck with that in China. Um, and certainly there's been no compensation those companies paid uh, in the intervening period. So we, we avoid China, we avoid Russia, we avoid other jurisdictions where we don't have confidence in the rule of law. So there's three big themes we're avoiding, competition, commodity price, uh, sovereign risk, and that reduces our universe to about 130 to 140 companies with a market cap of approximately two trillion US dollars. So it's about the size of the Australian Stock Exchange in total market cap terms, mm -hmm. smaller number of companies. That's because these companies are quite often quite large. Um, uh, and so there's a significant amount of capital involved. 
but about 130 to 140 And they're all listed, correct? These are all listed. And what sort of geography are you talking about here? So roughly 55% of those opportunities are in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, about a third is in Europe. Um, you know, that's giving us something like 85%. The other remaining 15% is dotted around Australia, New Zealand, uh, South America, uh, some in Asia, uh, and, and that's sort of the bulk of your opportunities. And how much money do you manage in that strategy aimed at infrastructure investments? So today we manage around about $8.5 billion. Mm -hmm. um, we think about capacity in, in US dollar terms. We think capacity is probably about... Uh, eight billion US dollars, which let's call that eleven or twelve Australian billion dollars. So we've still got some room to move. And how do you manage? You, you mentioned that most of these opportunities are not Australian, and most of the underlying exposures are not Australian. How do you think about and manage currency in those situations? Yeah, so we have two approaches to currency. We run a hedged fund and an unhedged fund. And when we say hedge, what we're hedging is the security exposure. The if we invest in into a US company in US dollars, we'll hedge that investment. What we don't hedge is the underlying dividends that, come, uh, that are coming back to us. So we don't take currency out of the dividends, but we, but we take the currency risk away from the underlying physical exposure. And, and it's sort of akin to oil prices and commodity prices. Um, you know, we have views about currencies, but we're not staking our reputation on, that, on those views. Um, and, and, you know, we, we essentially leave currency up to the, uh, the investor at the end of the day. We offer both hedged and unhedged, um, and, and we're not expressing a preference. We're sort of somewhat agnostic about currency. And, and all of the investments within the portfolio are listed entities. There's no private no. Uh, the, entities. The, the, the Magellan Infrastructure Fund and the Magellan Infrastructure Fund Unhedged both have an ability to invest in unlisted. It's in their uh, constitution. It's in the PDS. Uh, that up to 10% uh, of the portfolio could be invested in unlisted assets. It's never happened. I can't see the set of circumstances where it would because liquidity is just too important to us. If, if you like, one of the lessons of the GFC is that liquidity is incredibly valuable um, and we do move the portfolio around from time to time. Our turnover's not huge, but we do move the portfolio around from time to time um, and you know, ultimately this is, uh, that, that liquidity is incredibly valuable to us. So while technically we have an ability to do that, to invest in unlisted assets, we never have and I doubt we ever will. And historically, what sort of turnover has there been? You've said it hasn't been high, but... Yeah, so so since inception, it's been around about 20 to 25%. However, yes. in the last per three... Annum. Per annum. Yep. Per annum. Um, so if you like, we're holding investments on average for around about four years, four to five years. Um, in the last three years, it's been around about 30%. So it's, been, it's, it's tipped up a little in the last three years. Um, turnover is not an input into our process. We don't target turnover. Turnover will happen if stock prices rise and they meet our um, valuation expectations. There'll be turnover if a company misbehaves. We're not uh, very fond of uh, governance stuff-ups, if you like. Um, and we'll, there'll be turnover if we find that our economic thesis, our investment thesis behind the companies is just wrong. Um, so there's going to be events that drive turnover from time to time. In the last couple of years, we've had valuation, pretty significant valuation moves, and that's led to some turnover. In other words, we've been able to find cheaper opportunities um, because things have moved up in, in value. Um, and we've, we've tried uh, to mitigate some macroeconomic risk uh, somewhat over the last couple of years. We've seen that in the UK, in the United Kingdom, um, that there's some sort of potential for the Labor Party to come 
into power. We're normally somewhat agnostic about politics, but in the case of the Labour Party, the Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party in the UK, they have said that in the event that they come to power, that they will nationalise the utilities um, and that they will pay a maximum of book value. Now, these assets trade at 1.3 to 1.4 times book value under normal circumstances. So you're looking at an opportunity loss of sort of 30 to 40%. So as a result of that, uh, we have eventually exited the UK for a period in time. If I look back over history, the UK has typically been sort of 8, 9, 10% of our portfolio. So that created some turnover. Similarly, uh, there were, uh, back in 2018, we had some concerns around the Italian financial system, 30% uh, of the Italian banking system, the loans in the Italian banking system were non-performing. That was a set of circumstances that uh, we didn't think could continue forever. Um, and the ECB uh, needed to do something about it. We had some concerns around that. Eventually, the ECB uh, kicked that can down the road for a period. They've put in place um, some uh, an, an ability, or given the Italian banks an ability to manage their capital position. Um, and that led us to increasing our stake in Italy uh, after having artificially reduced it uh, because of that risk. So we're seeking to manage those risks from time to time. Um, I've already said that in, as far as we're, uh, we're concerned, infrastructure is not about um, getting rich quick. It's about generating wealth with a high degree of confidence. And therefore, we're certainly looking to manage value. We're also looking to manage risk in our portfolio. And, we'll, uh, and there'll be turnover as a consequence of both of those issues from time to time. And Gerald, performance has been really good. Do you want to maybe comment on the historical performance? The, the figures I'm sort of looking at indicate, you know, uh, last year has been very good at a circa 20% per annum, which seems outstanding, <coughs> and since inception about 9.2%, which is a solid 3% uh, over the uh, index, and, and it all measures even 10-year at 14.4% uh, return. Um, are those the type of... What type of returns do you think it's realistic for people investing in this type of asset class to expect? Yep. And also, how do you view the risk of it, say, vis-a-vis -vis equities? Yeah, so I think the investment argument for infrastructure is that it develop, that you grow your wealth with a high degree of confidence over time, but you don't, you're not going to get rich quick. So what does that mean? It means infrastructure should deliver you, in our view, inflation plus five um, and uh, there really should, if you get definition right, if you avoid those things where that can go wrong, where there's a bit of excitement, if you like, um, and just stick to those things that are reliable and predictable and boring, then you should have a pretty high degree of confidence you're going to get those sorts of returns over time. In any given year, markets will do what markets will do, but ultimately, share prices reflect underlying cash flows, and if we're investing in those things where cash flows are highly reliable and predictable, you should have a high degree of confidence in those returns. So inflation plus five is roughly what we think you should do. Um, uh, and the second part to infrastructure vis-a-vis -vis equities is that you should have low downside capture. Uh, again, these are very uh, reliable, resilient income streams. And in when markets are falling, these are the places that you don't expect to move too much. People, have... people still drive on toll roads even after the GFC. Yeah, as I like to say, um, it's my experience that when people have experienced electricity, they're not all that keen to give it up. <laughs> so similarly, the demand for water, the demand for electricity, highly reliable, highly predictable. I would imagine airports would be probably one area that are a little bit cyclical. Yeah, well, it can be, yeah, absolutely. But both toll roads and airports can suffer somewhat in a downturn. But really what you're suffering of in uh, history would suggest is growth. You're getting lower growth. 
um, rather than necessarily suffering a threat to the uh, to the underlying franchise. And indeed, if I look through the sort of the last the the, the, the great recession of sort of 2008, 9, 10, um, airports globally, not all, not necessarily individually, but globally, continued to grow their earnings through that uh, through that period. So, uh, um, so the, while the GFC is not a period I would particularly like to live through again, what it did do for infrastructure is very much prove up the thesis in terms of these assets. Regulated utilities continued to make their um, very reliable return around about ten and a half percent at that point. Probably you'd expect lower today because the interest rates have mm -hmm. fallen. Uh, but roughly 10.5% through that period, airports and toll roads on our analysis continued to grow their earnings. They grew them at a slower rate, but they continued to grow their earnings through that period. So very reliable, predictable earnings, and therefore share prices initially fell, but markets, you know, global equities fell around about 50%, uh, top to bottom. Um, infrastructure fell about 30% through that period, so about 60% downside capture. But within 18 months, infrastructure was back to zero. And by the time that markets got back to zero, global equities, as in the MSCI index, by the time the MSCI index got back to zero, infrastructure, as we define it, was up around about 50%. Um, so very reliable, predictable cash flows. And if you like, what we, what we, the way that we would describe that is this is the triumph of cash flow. These companies are not particularly interesting. Indeed, uh, if we've got excitement in your life, and you're calling yourself an infrastructure investment manager, you probably got the definition wrong in our view. Um, this should be highly reliable, predictable, and boring. And that's ultimately what saves you here. So if markets are rising hard, if, you know, if the world's um, having a picnic, then you would expect infrastructure to underperform. You'd expect it to perform to its inflation plus five, but it, you'd expect it to underperform broader markets. But if um, markets are middling to flat or indeed going down, infrastructure should deliver you much uh, stronger relative performance over time. And it's that it's the combination of that low downside capture plus consistent performance over time that we think is the argument for, for uh, investing in infrastructure. Gerald, can you give our listeners an example of an investment that has gone really well and maybe reference your process and systems that led you to that investment to give a, a bit of colour and a specific example and then pay, perhaps contrast that with an example where the outcome hasn't been as favourable. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about the toll road space. So we particularly like urban toll roads. Um, we, uh, I would regard urban toll roads as the kings of infrastructure assets because they're highly reliable and predictable and there's highly reliable growth in traffic over time. Now, why is that the case? Well, urban roads exist um, within a single uh, urban centre. Um, they're typically about uh, commerce. They're either taking people to and from work or between places of work over the course of a day. Now, uh, toll roads exist not because people like them. I get that people don't like them, um, except investment managers. We love them. Um, but people generally don't like them, but they exist because the free roads are full and the government doesn't have a lot of money to spend. So when you build a toll road, you're starting with the proposition that the free roads are full and therefore, provided there's population growth, and or economic growth coming into a, into a catchment, then that population growth has really only got one place to go. So if I look at, for example, the M5 corridor here in Sydney, um, from 1993 through to 2016, uh, traffic growth through that catchment has been around about 2.8% per annum. The, two, the major free roads through that period have basically been flat in terms of their traffic. And why? Because they're full. 
the toll road, the M5 has grown traffic at about 6.6% per annum. So two times the underlying catchment rate because it's the only place where there's capacity so the traffic has to go there. So that's why we like those sorts of assets. And if I look at Transurban, Transurban is uh, the toll road network in Sydney, the toll road network essentially in Melbourne and the toll road network in Brisbane, each of which are jurisdictions where there's population growth of somewhere between one and one and a half percent forecast for the next 50 years uh, by the ABS. Um, and this, as a result, you can have a high degree of confidence you're going to get traffic growth until such time as those roads hit capacity uh, in the future. So th that, that picture has been around for you know, at least the last 15 years, arguably since when, uh, when Transurban was first uh, privatised back in the late 90s. Um, and so periodically people look at Transurban and think that it's expensive, that traffic is going to drop. Um, we've had a high degree of confidence that, that traffic would continue to grow and that, that would, you would, uh, as a result, lead to continued um, um, robust growth in underlying cash flows, and you've seen that over time. That's, that, that's the, the perfect picture of what we expect out of, an, uh, out of a toll road company, and in particular an urban toll road company. So that, that's one that's gone well. So you would hold, I think, at the moment in the fund around 6% exposure to Transurban? Yeah, somewhere and, in the 6 to 7% range. How, how long have you been in Transurban? Uh, so we've been in Transurban... Uh, as, a, as an investment all, all the way back to 2007. But the positioning, position size has been quite different over time. Um, in the early days, we had some concerns that they, uh, around governance really, that they were looking to be, in our view, too acquisitive. A and B, that um, they had debt levels that were unsustainable. At that point in time, they were paying distributions out of, uh, out of debt, they're raising debt to pay distributions rather than out of operate, underlying operating cash flow and that caused us some issues. So we had quite a small position. Um, they then had some management changes over time. Uh, they, um, they moved away, they, they had very good projects at that point in time, we just didn't like the, the financial structure so much. They then changed uh, the management team um, and uh, the new CEO, Chris Lynch, went to a policy where he stopped paying dividends out of debt and, and just stuck to operating cash flow. At that point in time, we increased our stake. And then uh, the current CEO, Scott Charlton, came on board and Scott's done a wonderful job in our view of um, enhancing, uh, or certainly under Scott's leadership, that Transurban's done a wonderful job of enhancing their underlying operating costs, their efficiency of what they do, um, and then of building relationships with governments and, and uh, parlaying that into successful transactions, um, the acquisition of the Brisbane network, the acquisition of uh, parts of the, of the Sydney network. Um, and I've, I, in our view, they've done that in a win-win environment where it's been a good outcome for the government as well as a good outcome for Transurban. So through that period, our stake increased. Uh, it got as high at one point as roughly 10%. 10% is uh, essentially the maximum position we can take. Um, we've subsequently sold some down. The share price got ahead of where we expected it to be at a point in time, and therefore the uh, investment opportunities in other, uh, in other jurisdictions looked more attractive to us. You, you referenced debt in, in that answer, Gerald. How much debt are you comfortable with an investee company or a project uh, holding within it in the infrastructure space? So um, because underlying cash flows are reliable and predictable, there's going to be a fair amount of, uh, of debt held. So if you think about a standard company having typically 70% equity and 30% debt, in the infrastructure space, we, we would typically expect roughly 50-50, 50% debt, 50% equity. But that will change depending upon the nature of how economically sensitive your uh, revenues are. Mm -hmm. So a regulated utility, which faces very little 
um, uh, fluctuation volatility in underlying revenues. Absolutely 50% debt causes us not too many concerns. Uh, for a toll road, once it's operating and the traffic has uh, arrives, right, once you've actually got traffic, um, then you can start to gear those cash flows appropriately. But on day one for a toll road, when you open the toll road, we would expect it to have very little debt. And the reason for that is toll roads ultimately sell time. Um, and they have a situation where they're, they're there because the free roads are full. But if you open a new toll road, you take traffic off the full road. You order, you've just made their service a whole heap better. Um, so understanding that relationship and understanding when that free road's going to actually fill up again is a key issue. So you can be, as a result, you can be quite confident, I think, in the five to 10 year traffic forecasts for a toll road. But those early years, as traffic ramps up, it can be quite unpredictable. And we've seen a number of toll roads struggle with that. Um, historically. Lane Cove Tunnel, I think. Lane Cove been. Tunnel, Cross City Tunnel is another one. Um, uh, so day one, arguably we would want close to zero, but let's say low debt in, an, in a toll road. Once traffic's established, we're happy to go to 50%. Yep, trend up and down. Uh, airports, more like 20 to 40%, so lower level again. And then ports, the most economically sensitive of the assets we look at. Um, volumes can be quite strong or quite weak depending upon the state of the economy. Um, we would be looking at more like 20% debt. And what's an example where the investment thesis hasn't gone so well? So uh, perhaps a good example of that would be Atlantia. Atlantia is, uh, owns 70% of the Italian motorway system. Um, uh, so very great assets, um, toll roads again, um, long history of uh, consistent um, traffic and earnings growth. Uh, but last year uh, in 2018, in August 2018, we had the uh, failure of the uh, Murundi Bridge in Genoa in Italy, killing 43 people. Not a situation we saw coming. Um, and uh, the, that, that bridge is part of the concession that Atlantia has with the government. Um, and uh, the, the concession, the contract they have with the government specifies that in the event that the government wants to take that contract off them, there's to be compensation paid except in the event where there's gross negligence. Now, the Italian government at that time was a, uh, a, a match, a mix of the far right and the far left, so not particularly stable. And that government um, went hard after Atlantia and threatened to revoke for no consideration. To, um, and given the volatility of Italian politics, um, that led to the share price falling from circa 23, 24 euro down to about 17 euro. Um, and we sold through that period. We sold out at about 19 euro, and really because we had concerns around that political process. Um, sovereign risk um, is a key risk with infrastructure assets. The nature of infrastructure is you build a typically large, ugly piece of capital equipment, whether that's a power station or uh, power lines or an airport or a toll road, with a lot of capital, a lot of money, a lot of capital expenditure on day one, and then you're getting this long series of cash flows into the future. Having built the asset, if you then have those cash flows taken off you by the government, that's a bit of a, you know, that's nothing, that's not something you can really recover from. So we had some concerns around that um, and we've elected to get out of Atlantia. Now Atlantia's recovered somewhat since that point in time. It's been a, a you know, very, it's been good times in infrastructure markets at that point in time. So um, I'm not sure the investors have lost out by us moving away from Atlantia into other investments, but nevertheless, we, we sold out at a point which, um, with the benefit of hindsight, would have been better to stay in. We sold out though for, for the reason that we were worried about the capital position. And for us, 
um, it's, it, it, it would not be good for us to go back to investors and say we lost money here because of a risk we could have foreseen. We could see, foresee that risk, we understood that, we understood that that might hurt us, but we still felt it was the best thing to do. Gerald, Magellan's been very much on the front foot and Hamish particularly around lower interest rates and the cost of capital and what that means for the prices of assets broadly, mainly in, in the respect of equities that he's yep. been talking about. But you know, it's well known that interest rate outlook globally now is probably lower rates for a longer amount of time and the risk-free rate of capital, most people would say, is is a lot lower. Uh, and you're talking about consistent cash flows and valuing these assets where I'd imagine you'd be applying some sort of a discount to bring them back to a value you're happy to, to pay for today. How are you thinking about lower cost of capital and interest rates in your modeling and discounting of cash flow? And is that producing valuations that look too high or how are you approaching that? Yeah, essentially, what we—I mean, when we come to value assets, we're thinking about this in, in a probabilistic uh, nature. That is, we're thinking about valuation as a range, um, and we want more upside than we want downside, if you like, in that range. Um, so, when we come to that, what's the midpoint? What's the base case rate? It's roughly one and a half percent above where rates are sitting today. So, if you like, baked into our forecast and our valuation is an assumption that interest rates will rise. Um, by approximately 1.5% over, let's say, the next two years. Um, and so we're, when, we, when we make a purchase decision or indeed a selling decision, we're assuming that rates are going to rise. And therefore, you know, let's assume that rates do rise, provided they don't rise by more than 1.5%, then our underlying valuation position should be pretty secure. If rates go through that, then we've got some issues. It'll be reasonably volatile. But provided rates don't rise by more than 1.5%, it's different in different markets, but roughly 1.5%, then we, then we should be uh, fine. And indeed, when we look at prices today, prices of infrastructure assets on our analysis seem to be assuming somewhere between a 1.5% or something like a 1% to 1.5% uh, increase in prices. In other words, we think our market's looking like we're pretty good value at the moment. People like, it's not no secret that rates are low, but it doesn't appear to us that anyone's assuming that they will remain low. People are assuming that rates will rise in terms of the way that, uh, of the prices they're willing to pay for assets. So if rates rise, we expect to see some volatility, notwithstanding the fact that people are expecting it. And, and why? Uh, pretty much every man and his dog believes that uh, infrastructure is a bond proxy. So what that means is that in the short term, as interest rates rise, there are less people buying, people keep selling, no buyer and a seller means that share prices will fall. But very quickly, what we found historically is that the uh, normal position reasserts itself, the buyers come back. So if we look at the last three times we've seen interest rate rises, the taper tantrum back in May, June 2013, um, the election of Mr. Trump in the back of uh, 2016, and then the US tax reform in the start of 2018, each of those times, underlying US 10-year government bond yields rose by around about 90 basis points. And each of those times, infrastructure fell roughly 5%. So rates up by close to one, infrastructure down by five, typically over around about a two-month time frame. So we get this knee-jerk reaction that as rates rise, infrastructure gets sold off. But on each of those occasions, over the next two months, essentially, infrastructure's come back to zero. And on the, in the third two months, it's gone back to the trend line. So we see a short-term knee-jerk reaction, but infrastructure each time has come back. And that's probably what we expect over the next couple of years. We expect some volatility as rates rise, or as and when rates rise, if rates rise, if you like. 
but we don't see underlying valuation threatened um, by a rise in rates, provided it keeps that sort of 1.5% level. Indeed, if infrastructure, if rates don't rise, then we would expect better returns than what, we've his, uh, than what we normally expect. So we expect inflation plus 5. We think on the basis of an interest rate rise of 1.5%, of that inflation plus 5 is fine. But indeed, if rates don't rise, we, we, we would expect and hope to do better. And I assume that most of these assets are pretty well protected against inflation in that they would have some sort of agreement written into them that toll roads get to go up by X amount plus inflation. Yeah. So you're protected against a spike. Yeah. So if, if you think about our universe as being regulated utilities on one hand, that's about 60% of our universe. And the other 40% is transport infrastructure. Regulated utilities, they regulate the point of earnings. So the way that that works is the regulator sets a price for the service that the regulated utility provides, water gas, electricity, and they set that price so that the utility can earn around about today, probably around about a 9% return on their equity base. They can earn a return on equity of 9% with pretty little risk. So that's the regulated utility space, and they set that price um, so that the 9% is there, and therefore if there's inflation, they'll allow you to put your prices up. If things are going really well, you put your prices down, but you should be around about that 9% return. In infrastructure, in transport infrastructure, toll roads or airports or uh, other transports, you set a, uh, it's typically the price that gets regulated. So the price is linked to inflation. And therefore, if inflation's rising, uh, in the case of a toll road, uh, typically that you're automatically escalating your tolls every quarter to account for inflation. So you've actually already captured the inflation price and you're, therefore you're protected from inflation. So inflation for us is not the thing that causes us angst. These assets are well protected from inflation. And indeed, if you think about that in an interest rate um, uh, environment, uh, a rise in nominal interest rates, the rate that most of us will pay at the bank, doesn't per se cause us a concern, provided it's reflecting inflation. It's when rate, interest rates go up without an increase, a corresponding increase in inflation that we have a problem, an increase in real interest rates. That's the, yeah, the one that causes us more issues. And Gerald, to, to wrap us up, maybe we could talk just a little bit quickly about the big shifts that you've seen over the last 10, five years and the type of shifts you see going forward in type in terms of the style of assets or trends you're seeing in, in infrastructure investment. <clears throat> so um, we haven't seen dramatic changes in our universe over the last decade. Um, we've certainly, we've seen there's been a lot of capital raised in the unlisted infrastructure environment, and so periodically we've seen the unlisted guys come in and, and take out some of our uh, listed assets. So we've seen a little bit of that, not a huge amount. I suspect there'll be some more of that. There remains a lot of capital raised by unlisted infrastructure um, uh, managers that's looking for a home. So in I, Australia or globally or globally, both? globally and both. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would expect, I don't expect that to be a dominant theme, but I expect that that will happen from time to time. Most recently we saw the bid for uh, APA uh, here in Australia. So I expect there to be some of that. We haven't seen dramatic change in the nature of uh, the infrastructure asset space. We do expect that um, uh, with the development of uh, batteries and, so and renewable energies that we'll start to see some new assets come to our space. Now we at Magellan have tended not to invest in renewable energy. Renewable energy is power generation um, and if it's uh, any asset that's subject to competition or a, a commodity price, i.e. The, the electricity price, then we're not going to be there. But to the extent that renewable energy um, has a, a take or pay agreement, an agreement with um, a corporate offtake um, 
consumer that they're going to take their electricity off them at a set price for 15 years or more, then that starts to get interesting for us. So we may see assets there. What we particularly uh, expect to see is um, batteries. Um, we expect that that will be an asset that uh, may well come into our utility space, that there'll be utilities who operate very large-scale batteries um, and that that will become part of their regulated asset base, the, the, the asset base on which they earn a return. So that's a potentially a new type of asset for us. Similarly, potentially electric charging station, electric vehicle charging stations is another asset which um, it could, we could ex well expect would be monopoly-like and therefore regulated and would fit into that, uh, into that context. So there's, a, there's some of the things that we're thinking about. Well, there is some excitement in your world. Well, limited amounts. We don't. Uh, if I've got excitement, too much excitement, then I need to find a new job, I suspect. Gerald, I'm just not the guy for that. Gerald, that's been a, a wonderful summary of the asset class and the fund, and congratulations on the performance to date. That's been, that's been stellar. Uh, thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Thanks very much, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.